from Springfield, this is State Week, a program of analysis and commentary on the events that made news this past week in Illinois state government and politics. Former CPS schools chief Paul Vallis is polling as one of the front runners in the race to become mayor of Chicago. But WTTW News can confirm that Vallis's legal primary residence is not actually in the city. And we've learned that our inquiries have prompted the Cook County Assessor's Office to open an investigation. Questions about Vallis's residency paint a complicated picture of rules establishing who is and isn't qualified to run for mayor. Well, a bombshell that could impact the race for Chicago mayor, Paul Vallis leading in some of the polling. We'll get an update on that race. We'll also preview next week's budget address. Governor J.B. Pritzker will lay out his vision for his second term with an improved fiscal outlook, certainly compared to when he first took over. We'll discuss that and more coming up on State Week. I'm Sean Crawford in Springfield, and along with us today we have Charlie Wheeler, Professor Emeritus and former Director of the Public Affairs Reporting Program at the University of Illinois Springfield. Charlie's also been a longtime Statehouse reporter and observer. Also joining us, we have Jerry Nowicki, the Bureau Chief for Capital News Illinois. And Jerry, thanks for being back with us again. Yeah, thanks for having me, Sean. Also with us, we have Heather Sharon. She covers politics. In fact, she's the local politics reporter for Chicago Tonight. And Heather, it's always good to have you with us as well. I'm glad to be back. So let's start with the state budget. Jerry, I'll go to you first on this. You wrote about what is happening next week. You had an article for Capital News Illinois titled, What to Know Ahead of Pritzker's Budget Proposal to Lawmakers. So I'll let you tell us what should we know. Yeah, it's uh, sort of we're coming out of this uh, pandemic era period where revenues kind of ballooned or skyrocketed past what we actually expected them to be for the past two years now. It looks like for the second year in a row this year, if the pace we are on continues, um, that revenue will top $50 billion again, which is sort of unheard of for the state. Um, but we're going to watch uh, as the governor makes his address next week, what it will look like in terms of revenue projections for the 12 month period, uh, you know, uh, in the future, which contains the budget. So I expect that the governor will uh, probably temper those expectations. There's going to be most likely a um, lower revenue estimate than uh, we've had for the past two years, just because the pandemic related aid is wearing off and uh, the budget was buoyed most by indirect aid, like um, the people of Illinois got checks from the federal government, and that money was spent in the economy. So that uh, boosted things, and then there was increased unemployment benefits, increased uh, Medicaid match on certain things, which certainly helped the finances, but all that's sort of going away, and nobody's quite sure whether a recession is going to follow. Nobody really knows what's going to happen, but uh, we expect conservative estimates from the governor's office, at least uh, when they're planning for the revenues for the upcoming year. Well, Jerry, he's going to pat himself on the back a little bit, I would think, because, uh, again, things are have turned around quite a bit, I think, even to the governor's surprise of how things have turned since he first took over uh, four years ago. Uh, is it likely? We don't know exactly what he's going to call for in this budget, but he, he's got programs and he's got uh, priorities that he wants to see funded as well. Do we have an idea what he may uh, what he may propose? Yeah, so he's definitely telegraphed some areas of increased spending, buoying child care access across the state. He wants it, you know, available to everyone. I don't know 
what that looks like in terms of a, a X's and O's proposal in, in law. I don't know what that's going to cost. I don't know how expansive it'll be. And I, I, I honestly don't know anything about it. So we're hoping to get some of those details Wednesday. And then he said he'd like to make college uh, available to uh, in Illinoisans of a certain income level for all of them for free. And again, don't know the income levels, don't know which colleges. I'd imagine it would be state um, colleges, but those are the devil in the details on those types of proposals. And and they sound expensive. They're probably going to raise um, uh, state spending quite a bit. And then you know you have to watch to see if if even some members of the Democratic Party are concerned about that. Yeah, Charlie, with the Democrats in such control of state government, super majorities in both chambers, uh, it strikes me that that you know very progressive caucuses too. I I think that no matter what he proposes here, some of the things we just talked about there. He's going to have support for, as as Jerry mentioned, the devil's in the details when it comes to the cost. Yeah, I, I think the difficulty from the governor's perspective would be to rein in what ideas are floating around now. And as Jerry said, one of the things the governor suggested was that we should do more in early childhood. Well, the State Board of Education uh, adopted a budget for the coming fiscal year last month, and they're suggesting... Um, putting roughly $60 million more into early childhood. And that's a lot of money. But on the other hand, there were estimates that that appeared by, I, it was a national organization, uh, that to enroll all low-income children in Illinois in early childhood education would cost more than $500 million in additional money. So there's that kind of hurdle to jump over. The State Board of Higher Education is recommending a $50 million increase for the Monetary Award Program, which is the, the largest uh, scholarship fund that, that the state operates. So there are a couple of areas there. And one of the things that's interesting, and Jerry, you pointed this out in a column or in a story oh, just the other day, because of the fact that the state used $500 million in this, quote, surplus, quote, revenue the last two fiscal years to pay into the pension funds, the actual amount we're going to have to contribute to the pensions under the uh, 1995 pension ramp formula is going to be less than what we've put in the last couple of years. So instead of being a big chunk for new pension money, that is going to be a departure. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, this what we did the last two years in putting the additional money into the pensions, that's the first time that has ever happened in state history, going back, I guess, to 1818. So there are all these pressures. Uh, another thing, there were a, a group of progressive Democrats that argued uh, that we should have a $700 child tax, tax credit low-income families, moderate-income families, those making less than $75,000 a year would get a $700 tax credit for each child under 17. And again, the estimate for this, I mean, it sounds like a wonderful program, but the estimated cost would be in the neighborhood of $700 million to $800 million each year. So these are some of the pressures that the governor is going to have to deal with as he tries to put together a budget and stay within 
the expected revenues to the credit of, of the governor, and he's been, uh, and, and also Comptroller Susan Mendoza has been pushing for this, is that we don't create new programs with ongoing expenses, but rather that we use whatever money comes in ahead of what the estimates were and use it to meet some of our past obligations. Well, Heather, I think that uh, the governor has to walk a bit of a tightrope here because he's going to want to, you know, I would think, take a victory lap for the finances being better. Uh, I know I would if I was him. But at the same time, he's got this, as we mentioned, this picture that isn't as rosy as some people might think. Deficits uh, could be on the horizon. So it's going to be a bit of a challenge for him, I think, when he lays out this budget. That's right. And I think Jerry was exactly right when he said that the governor has spent a lot of time in the last couple of weeks telegraphing that his focus for really this, the kickoff of his second term, will be on education and specifically early childhood education. And that is something that polls really well, especially with Democratic um, voters, but it is expensive. And the proof will really be in the pudding in terms of how much money the state can afford to put into those programs and sort of how that money gets divided up. I I also expect that with this renewed focus on education, you're also going to see more questions about whether, you know, the state is really meeting its obligation under the, you know, evidence-based funding model. There are a lot of questions, but I fully expect the governor to spend a significant amount of time um, in the next couple of weeks and during his speech, you know, talking about education, perhaps moving away from some of the more hot button issues that really took up the veto session in terms of, you know, gun control and and abortion care and reproductive rights aspects. So it will be um, a little bit of a, a return to normal now that we're sort of, you know, fully sort of in this sort of new phase of the pandemic with, with no restrictions and with the emergency, you know, set to expire in May. So um, it, it's almost sort of a, a fresh start for the governor, but with with real questions about what the what the state's finances look like. And Jerry, going forward, one way to pay for some of these things and you know, cover debts like pensions would be the possibility of a tax increase or at least some type of surcharge. The Commercial Club of Chicago's issued a report, and it raises some ideas for. And I believe these were all. Uh, they wanted they they would support these, but they would all be tied to uh, paying down pension debt uh, increases. That it would include taxing services, retirement income, also making teachers and state workers pay more for their health insurance. Probably not popular, but do you expect the governor could raise some of these ideas during his speech? Do you think tax increases will be on the table? You know, I, I, it's going to be difficult to certainly tax retirement income. Uh, I I don't I wouldn't expect him to. Uh, propose anything like that. Uh, Tax on services, also a challenge, I think, in his first year. That was initially part of the Rebuild Illinois Capital Infrastructure Plan, but was taken out very quickly. Um, Once It might not even have been an official proposal. It might have just been a detail that leaked uh, at the time. I can't remember. But anyway, they quickly decided not to tax services. So the the one uh, thing that's interesting is you'd mentioned a surcharge. And I think the, uh, was it the commercial club? It was a a half a percentage point they um, talked about adding to the personal income tax when a proportionate uh, increase to the corporate tax as well, which they said if 100% of it went to pensions, they could accelerate 
what's called the Edgar ramp, that 1995 law Charlie referred to, that could accelerate it and bring pensions to 100% uh, quicker than the ramp that has them getting to 90% at 2045. And that had, that had pushed the income tax rate from 4.95% to 5.45%. Again, that's not the governor's plan. Don't know if he would even consider something like that. Uh, but, you know, it was one of the more interesting ones to me from someone who watches this sort of thing. But I have no idea if the governor is going to uh, lobby for increased revenues or not. Heather, do you think that uh, we could see something like that? Or at least I I'm guessing he's going to have to leave the door open at least. Um, you know, I, I think that that's very much an open question because, um, you know, we've got the governor who is riding high on his, you know, convincing re-election victory. He's got a lot of political capital now. So the conventional wisdom would would be that if he's going to, um, you know, sort of make a proposal that could potentially be controversial, now is the time to do it. I think it's an open question about whether he's going to do that. You know, it may be that um, he chooses to sort of use that political capital in in different ways, in, in, especially since we've seen so much emphasis on on education and, and early childhood and, um, education. Yeah, Charlie, your thoughts? I mean, he's pushed for the graduated income tax before. I guess he could do that again too. Yeah, although he said that he's that he doesn't have that at, at on, on his radar at this point because it was rejected fairly overwhelmingly by voters when it was put forward a couple of years ago. Now, there have been lawmakers who have argued that, well, we should try again, but Pritzker has been cool to that. And the one thing that I noticed interesting about this uh, report from the Civic Committee of the Commercial Club uh, was that they could support income tax surcharges for people and companies, uh, but everybody would get the same level of, of surcharge. And the the civic committee was one of the big opponents of the graduated income tax. So you could look at it and say the civic committee is made up of really big business types in this, in the city. And they're willing to take a little bit of a income tax increase as long as everybody else does too. But heaven forbid that we should have a graduated tax that would ask us the, if you want to use a derogatory term, the plutocrats, to actually pay a higher percentage than the serfs out in the on the fields. What I found most interesting is that the civic committee apparently has finally come to the conclusion that the pension clause really means what it says in the constitution. And they acknowledged in, in the proposal, and this is a quote from one of their leaders, our approach in this report is based on the conclusion that we must accept the Supreme Court's rulings on pension reforms and should instead focus on how to most effectively fund the plans. So they've given up what I always considered a long shot of trying to reduce the benefits of people who are in the pension system now. And of course, going forward, the legislature and the governor could make whatever changes they wanted for new employees. But if you're in the system already, as Sean and I are, our benefits are guaranteed. Well, Jerry, I'm going to let you have the final word on this. Not everybody pays attention to the uh, to the state budget and certainly to the governor's address. But how important is this one? I mean, he's been through the pandemic. He inherited a terrible fiscal mess when he took over. Things look a lot better on both fronts right now, even though there are still some some clouds out there. But uh, 
How important is this speech and, and this budget proposal for the governor? Well, a lot of the term you often hear in the capital circles is that the budget is a moral document and, you know, you're allocating the funds to what uh, types of programs you think are necessary to combat crime, to combat pain and suffering, to give a leg up to the people who are downtrodden. So, um, you know, where you allocate those funds is a big deal. Now, in Illinois, of course, we've talked a lot about pensions and 20% of the spending goes to pensions, which, you know, is also a big deal because if if you short that now, you're asking, you know, our children's generations to, to essentially foot that bill sometime down the future. So it's it's a it's a big deal. And, you know, the, the reason we're in this pension crisis now is because of past generations. So um, past generations of lawmakers in the General Assembly didn't put enough to pensions. Uh, so now there are these pressures now where maybe we don't have the types of services where I just mentioned where you're uh, giving people a helping hand or whatever. So uh, it's a big deal. And, you know, fiscal responsibility is a, is a major part of it right now. And I think the governor's telegraphed that he'd, he'd like to be responsible. We'll just see how his um, thoughts of how we could add spending and programs fits in line with you know, taking the steps that make it easier for future generations. You're listening to State Week. I'm Sean Crawford, along with Charlie Wheeler, Jerry Nowicki with Capital News Illinois, and Heather Sharone from WTTW's Chicago Tonight. Jerry has to leave us now. We're going to say goodbye to him. Jerry, we thank you for being with us and look forward to having you on again next time. Yeah, thanks. I enjoyed it. So let's turn our attention now to the Chicago mayor's race, and we've got a good person on to talk about that. Heather, you've been following it quite a bit. Not everybody in the state and that listens to this program follows Chicago politics that closely. So give us an overview of that race. There's a lot of people running. Yeah, there are nine candidates, of course, including Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who is seeking to become the first woman to be re-elected Chicago mayor. And there has been a lot of polling, some of it uh, legitimate, some of it it's not legitimate. It seems like the leading candidates include um, Jesus Chuy Garcia, the congressperson, um, Brandon Johnson, the Cook County Commissioner, um, and Paul Vallis and, and Willie Wilson. And it's unlikely that any of those candidates will get more than 50% of the vote, which will mean that the top two finishers head to a runoff after the February 28th election, which means that we don't know who will be the next mayor of Chicago until April 4th. So we are approaching the home stretch. I don't think I can psychologically say we're in the home stretch yet because we have a long way to go. Um, but it is a, a hard fought race that once again proves that Chicago politics ain't beanbag. Well, you and your colleague Paris Schutz of Chicago Tonight had a exclusive reports uh, taking a look at Paul Vallis's residency. This has cropped up before in races, especially in the Chicago area. Uh, what did you find when it comes to Mr. Vallis? Well, we found that he um, has told um, county and state officials that his legal permanent residence is in Palos Heights, and he and his wife received the, the Homestead TAPS exemption on that property rather than in Chicago. Now, he's registered to vote in Chicago and has been registered to vote from a, um, a Bridgeport apartment that he rents, and this story was was 
was really prompted about questions about you know, can you be a Chicagoan and serve as Chicago mayor, but have a legal residence in, in Palos Heights, which is in the South suburbs? And that's really what we wanted to take a look at. So we asked Paul Vallis to come on the show and sort of address these questions. He declined and said, instead sent us a statement saying that while, you know, his he, the Palos Heights house is where his wife lives to care for her aging parents and his um, aging mom, and that he lives in Chicago and, you know, is, is fully eligible to be Chicago mayor. Um, we also reached out to the Cook County Assessor and we had them sort of look at the documentation there and they opened an investigation to make sure that that property tax exemption was, was properly received. And we're continuing to report on that issue. The Vallis campaign says that that exemption was properly. But really the question is, is that, you know, Paul Vallis clearly has deep ties to Palos Heights. Um, and, you know, what does that mean for somebody who wants to be Chicago's next mayor? So we don't know yet if there's some legal leeway here for Paul Vallis, uh, which could really shake up this race a bit uh, because, again, he has been polling pretty high in most uh, most of the polls. He has. And my sense is, is that he's really been able to consolidate the conservative vote in Chicago. He and Willie Wilson were really running to represent those voters who say that they want a uh, so-called tougher approach to crime. Of course, crime has been, you know, the number one, the number two, the number three issue in Chicago for, for many months now. And um, Paul Vallis has really sort of been out there leading the call to, you know, quote unquote, take the handcuffs off the police and let them engage in more proactive policing. Um, and so much of his campaign has been focused on public safety, um, even though, of course, he's probably best known in Chicago for having run the Chicago Public Schools in the, in the mid 90s before running unsuccessfully uh, in the early 2000s for governor and lieutenant governor. Yeah, Charlie, I want to get your thoughts on everything that uh, we were talking about there when it comes to uh, residency and the race in general, what you're seeing from a perspective of what we would consider downstate. Well, one of the things that occurred to me when, when I saw the reporting and read the story was that in a way, your residence is kind of where you say you want to be. And you look at some of the notable instances in, in the past, when Rahm Emanuel ran for mayor, he was challenged because he had been in Congress and the argument was he doesn't really live in Chicago. And it went to the court and it was substantiated. Yes, he does because he, the, the home that he has, he's running it out, but he intends to come back to Chicago at some point. Then if you go back when former President Obama first ran for the uh, U.S. Senate, the Republicans had a problem when their candidate they nominated had some personal scandals, and so they had, he withdrew, and they had to find somebody else, and they came up with a guy named Alan Keyes, who was a, a right-wing Black provocateur, I would call him, from the East Coast, and he rented an apartment in one of the South Suburbs to qualify as an Illinois resident to run for the U.S. Senate. Of course, he got trounced by Obama. So as I say, this is the kind of thing that the legal authorities would need to sort out. Now, as an aside, and Heather, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I suspect that were I a Chicago school teacher, 
or a Chicago police officer, and I rented an apartment somewhere when, for all intents and purposes, my actual home was outside the city, I could be disciplined for that. I would never correct you, um, Charlie, in any case, but especially uh, I have no call to do so because you're correct. There's a requirement that all city workers, including teachers and police officers, live in the city of Chicago. And that, of course, can be very controversial. And in fact, Paul Vallis himself has suggested that uh, the city should not require at least probationary police officers to live in the city until they are, you know, sort of they finish that probationary period and are established on the on the police force. So this is a perennial issue. You're right. This, you know, questions faced Rahm Emanuel. And we spoke with the former Inspector General Joseph Ferguson, um, who had sort of investigated these sort of claims. And he said that it, it was likely that because Vallis, you know, spends every night in Bridgeport and wakes up there and goes to sleep there and only, um, you know, rarely visits Palos Heights, which is what his campaign told us that he would likely be able to withstand uh, any residency challenge. But of course, we're, we're past that time of, of possibility in the election. And, and this story was really just designed to give voters, you know, a chance to know a little bit about how Paul Vallis and, and of course, as part of our other coverage, the other candidates, you know, sort of how they're approaching, you know, leading the city. Well, we'll continue to follow the race, and Heather will have you back to talk more about it uh, once we know what happens here in the, uh, at least what, what's likely to be the first round of voting. Let's go to our, to our notes from the field, and uh, Charlie, let's go to you first. There's a provision for statues to honor two former U.S. presidents who have ties to Illinois, and the legislation would direct the architect of the Capitol to provide for the acquisition and placement of statues depicting former presidents Ronald Reagan and Barack Obama. Uh, President Reagan, as I'm sure most people will recall, was born in Tampico in northwestern Illinois. He moved to Dixon, which was is referred to as his boyhood home, and he also attended Eureka College. And President Obama served eight years in the state Senate, four in the U.S. Senate, before becoming president in 2009. And of course, he was the first African-American to be elected president. The bill is sponsored by Senator Tom Bennett from Gibson City, a Republican. And he said, and this is a quote, Reagan was a Republican, Obama's a Democrat. It seems like if we had a more bipartisan part of this, it might be more receptive with everyone in the House and in the Senate. So kudos to Senator Bennett for having the political acumen to have this as a bipartisan issue. All right. And Heather. Well, getting back to the mayor's race, um, we are about 18 days from Election Day, and this is about the time when independent expenditures start flowing um, both for and against candidates. And this is a relatively new phenomenon in Chicago elections, but is in full force with both committees trying to independent, so-called independent committees trying to help um, Paul Vallis and my colleagues over at Crane Chicago Business have done a, a, a great bit of reporting linking the, that committee with um, campaign a, campaigns a, campaign aides that are directly tied to the Vallis campaign. And I have a, another story out today about a um, committee formed by allies by Mayor Lori Lightfoot and who have gotten a number of donations, contributions, I should say, from city contractors that would be 
otherwise limited in what they could give candidates directly. So now is the time for, for the money to flow. And it, it is an interesting example of the nationalization of local politics, because of course, these committees are far more active at the state and federal level. All right. And I would be remiss if we didn't point out that Lawrence Massol passed away this past week. He was the president of the Civic Federation, often weighing in on public policy, especially fiscal matters. And he was respected on all sides. He also worked in state government, part of the uh, Governor Ryan and Thompson administrations. He and his expertise will be missed. That's all the time we have for State Week. Our panel included Charlie Wheeler, also Jerry Nowicki with Capital News Illinois, and Heather Sharon from WTTW's Chicago Tonight. You can get a podcast of our show at nprillinois.org through the NPR One app or iTunes. Just look for State Week and join us next time. I'm Sean Crawford. You've been listening to State Week, a program of commentary and analysis of events in Illinois state politics and government. State Week is produced in the state capitol by public radio station NPR Illinois. This is IPR, Illinois Public Radio.